first seed financing round, your investors are very, um, you know, product focused. They're like, okay, you need to create a product, which is going to massively scale and, and make us all a lot of money. And uh, you don't want to say that dirty word service. That's, that's a really dirty word, right? Because that's, that's totally not scalable and you don't, you, you, you're not doing that, right? Um, but I was given the advice by, um, by a seasoned CEO um, who told me like, look, at the beginning, it doesn't really matter. What you need is cash in and, and cash gives you freedom, right? If you have, if you're a sustainable business, you're free. You, you can, you know, you can develop at your own pace. You can do things your own way. And so um, do services, do services at the beginning because it's not necessarily scalable, but it will get you, it, it'll be much easier to close deals and it will get you to a stage where um, you're more regularly exchanging with people and you're learning about what it is that people really need. I'm really excited for the episode here today. We've got a good one. We've got Dayan Hushman, who's the CEO of DeNovo Matrix. Uh, they're a really early stage company, and we've got some really uh, interesting takeaways that he's going to share. But Nick, what are you looking forward to most? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the discussion with uh, oh, Dayan. Um, we, we've known him for a little while, Harrison and I, and I've always been really impressed with how he's first the learning about the sales process and not coming from a sales background as a founder and CEO. And he's, um, his understanding of those processes has always blown me away. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what he's got to say. Yep. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about a few different things. Uh, the transition from being a scientific founder to then actually having to go and sell the product uh, that you've now made. Uh, when you should think about hiring your first sales rep and making that transition from founder-led sales to actually building a team. And then we're also going to talk about just general early stage startup challenges, you know, specifically around investments and whatnot uh, across the globe. So really exciting stuff. Um, let's dive in. Dayan, welcome to the show. Pumped to have you here. Thanks for having me. Sorry to have you. Awesome. Well, uh, we prepped you here ahead of time. So you're aware we asked the same question to everybody uh, to kick off the episode. Uh, what's a funny or crazy story that's happened to you in your career? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I, I have to say I... I, I uh... Based on this question, I, I checked out some of the other stories out there. I thought, okay, what what uh, what's what what should I what should I expect? And um, yeah, a lot of really impressive stories came out. So I thought, oh, the the, the bar is is really really high. <laughs> but um, yeah, for us, uh, a funny story was um, last year we were negotiating uh, what turned out to be sort of our biggest sale of the year. Um, it was it was sort of yeah very classical. We we sold something to this company before, and uh, we'd been working on it for a couple of months. We had a very, very skeptical um, decision maker, but we were lucky that we also had a lady on board who was like the champion and she internally really understood the science. Um, and it really, really helped that we had another scientist so who worked with me and, and sort of they, they vibed really on the scientific level um, and I could sort of get all the scientific things, but also the sales points in on the side. Um, and we finally negotiated, you know, getting the deal closed. And we said, oh, great. It's like the biggest deal we've ever closed so far as a company. So we're really super excited about it. And then uh, we got a, an email from from this uh, champion who said, wow, there's a little sticky part. You know, we actually want to pay with credit cards. <laughs> and so for us, it was, oh, damn. <laughs> like, who does that? Who, who, you know, who pays for such a, you know, huge amount? I mean, it was it was effectively like a three a three to six month project, which we were going to uh, run with this with this company. And they wanted to pay, 
pay that with credit cards. So obviously uh, we didn't charge them enough <laughs> or, or yeah, or, or there are just differences in, in, in uh, how you pay things in the US versus in Germany. I mean, that's actually a big point. One of the things that we wanted to talk about today, right? So you guys are based in Germany and um, you, you obviously are selling a lot in you know, Germany, but then also in different cultures like the UK or in the US. What have you kind of noticed as some of the the differences in you know not only selling in those uh, you know locations, but you know maybe even just like operating and you know, functioning as a as a company? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly differences in mindset when it comes to um, discussions. I would say, yeah, there's, there's the things which most people notice is that you know uh, in the U.S. people are I guess more open. Everyone is like. Uh, in general, more more relaxed about um, taking on meetings and, and discussing things through. Um, I guess people are a little bit more guarded with their time uh, when you look at sort of Europe, like Swiss, uh, Swiss slash German. Um, but yeah, there's this mixtures of both. Um, yeah, ideas around, you know, paying for projects are, are also slightly different. Um, where I would say the biggest differences are uh, coming down to sort of which segment of the market. So so we, we sell to uh, sort of cell therapy companies, uh, Big Pharma, which we sort of see behave in a similar way. Um, and then we also did a bit of like cultivated meat market um, last year and the year before. And there we saw really, really big differences in the kind of behavior and the expectations that you have from the customers. So like, you know, what bar, how high is the bar set? And, uh, you know, all the questions that you get and like, oh, yeah, very, very demanding versus very relaxed. And um, so it's, that that's where I sort of saw the biggest differences. Um, I imagine there's like a threshold for um, like innovation, right? Or, or like the their willingness to try out new products and new services across these different markets as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. So, so um, again, I, I would be I'd be cautious about saying that it's necessarily uh, like a national difference where they say, okay, Americans are more innovative or, or open to innovation versus uh, versus Europeans. But um, you definitely see it in sort of the startup's fear as to you know how how open investors are, for example, in those two different areas. That's that's a really stark difference where you can say it's it's on, on national boundaries. It's dividing itself. Um, <clears throat> yeah. What else was there? I mean, there's also this like regulatory aspects which are slightly different, and there's also slight differences in, in sort of openness to risk in, in the different areas. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. In selling, so about investing, I'd say in selling. I noticed, and this is my own anecdote, being a British person who sold sort of globally, that German Germany and uh, sort of Germanic area countries want a lot of data before they'll make any decisions. Um, Japan seems very Japan's very similar. Do you see the same thing in investing? Is there that level of extra detail you you're expected than we maybe would in the US? Um, for for investing, I would say that's that's a difficult thing because it, it's you can't really ascertain how much data uh, other companies have given to their investors when they when they raise their round but um but but certainly from the the level of preparedness or the level of of um you know the way that they present themselves you you simply seeing a much much earlier stage or companies which have not yet really proven their market or not yet really proven their technology um, receiving uh, financing or like, you know, also seeing it from the teams, right? When you see a very youthful team full of people who just finished their PhDs, you know, raising like monster 30, 40, 50 million rounds, you think, wow, that's, you know, that's a lot of uh, courage to take on that, that kind of huge risk um, versus in Germany where, you know, I've, I've uh, been on, on, you know, dinner tables with CEOs of, you know, pharma companies, you know, they're in their fifties, their sixties and they're like, well, maybe we can perhaps raise like, you know, 10 million, perhaps, you know, we, we have like 10 years of data, but, you know, we'll be conserv conservative, you know? <laughs> so, so that, that is, that is certainly different. Um, and from the sales perspective, yeah, you're right. The, there are customers in, 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 you know, Germany and Japan who are very, very data demanding. 
Um, but I've also seen it. I've also seen it curiously, like in certain industries in the U.S. as well, where they'll be like, "Well, show me the proof. You know, I, I need to see the proof. I need to have, um, you know, your documentation. I want to see, you know, how you do quality management. They want to know it all before they they decide to to go with you as a as a vendor. Well, I guess that's one thing that we also wanted to touch on is sort of like that funding process, right? I think you've you've gone through this. You've you know, other people have kind of gone through similar processes uh, to to raise money. Um, you know, what, how do you kind of approach that uh, from your perspective? Um, so, so there's something which, which yeah, we were discussing earlier. So I think it's very, very context dependent. So if you are based in um, San Francisco, you would go about raising money very different than if you're based in, in London versus if you're based in uh, a small city somewhere in Germany, uh, then the process is, is very, very different for you, right? Um, it also has to do with pedigree. So whether you come from a famous university, uh, you have a strong, you know, like a well-known professor, key opinion leader behind you. Um, you would approach that again differently. Like they might have their own inroads into investors or people who they know who might know investors. So like, um, yeah, we call them multipliers um, in these like networks. Um, for us, it was the case that, you know, we didn't necessarily have these like options available to us. So rather what we did was we we scoured around, you know, what's what's available in Germany. And, and we went to sort of the most prolific investor here in Germany for, for young startups, uh, which is the High Tech Founders Fund. Which you know it, it would be the same thing that I would recommend to any founder here in Germany uh, to at least check those guys out to see if that's if that's a good fit for them. Um, but yeah, in the UK, um, you would have you know ten times as many investors uh, that would be a potentially good fit for you. And in the US, I think then that's you know multiplying even x-fold. So so then there's I would say more options available to you uh, if you're in sort of either in a big city or in a famous university. So is there then like a upside to potentially thinking about how you start your company in one of those locations? Absolutely. I think there's there's an upside in availability of, of investors or so people who are prepared to talk to you, uh, even at an early stage. Um, there's an availability of, of talent. So if you think of sort of the, the Y Combinator model of like, you know, finding founders or other people who think like you or could be complementary with their skill sets, uh, sort of increasing your chances of, of successfully, you know, creating that founder team. That really, really works. I think this is all multiplied if you're in these, uh, you know, very, very large cities. Um, in, in smaller towns, it's just unlikely that you know you're having this collection of minds or or complementary skill sets that come together. It's it's just more challenging. Uh, I mean, in Berlin, for example, there's there's like a a certain street in Berlin where it's just sort of food stalls and stuff. And if you go and sit there anywhere, in in pretty much five to ten minutes, you're going to hear someone pitching to a VC around you. Right, so it's just the place where all founders and VCs go to have lunch, um, and you know you, you can't get that in, in in smaller towns. There, there isn't you know such a hip, cool place to be. I want to know where it is now. I just want to spend time listening to the pitches. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're not always good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the podcast. It would mean the world to us if you could help spread the word by sharing it with someone you know. Succession is a life science sales membership that includes on-demand courses to uplevel your sales skills, resources to plan and execute your sales process community for peer-to-peer -peer networking and learning, and live workshops delivered twice a month. You can get access to all of this as an individual for just $79 a month, or up-level your entire team with customized learning pads built for each individual rep. Come join us at succession.bio. Switching gears uh, a little bit, you know, can we talk a bit about, okay, hey, now we've got you know, a little bit of funding. What, how do you think about leveraging that money to build the team, build the product, you know, really early stages. And right? I think we've talked and heard from other people on the show that have 
you know, more involved in the scale up side. So once you're able to you know, have a product, you're ready to take it to market, but how do you like figure it out before that, right? Because you have to have a product and you have to have a team in place ahead of time in order to, to even get to that scale up phase. Yeah. So I, ideally you, you think about it in a very, um, yeah, should I say it in, in a pre-planned way, right? So you need to think about, okay, where am I now in terms of how much money have I raised? How much more money do I think I need in the next stages to get to where I want, which is at a certain sort of revenue scale? And typically there's an, a, a multiplier. So, so your end game is that you're getting to your X amount of millions per year in, in yearly revenue. And there's a multiplier that your investors hope that they could sell your company for. And that needs to pay off the amount of money which they've given you, right? And, you know, most investors, uh, you know, would need at a minimum like, a, you know, 3x return on their money at the very basic, basic, basic level. And that's not even considered a win. Um, but most likely they, they want uh, a fund return. So like a 10x on their money or 20x on their money, right? And so just thinking about how much money people are raising, then the question is like, is your business big enough to support that dream? Right, so if I'm if I'm raising ten million from someone, then the expectation is I can sell my business for a hundred. Uh, will my business ever be a hundred? Um, if you're in the therapeutic space, that's that's a, a pretty easy question to answer. So you don't even need to think about the sales aspects; you can forget them because for therapeutics, most of that happens so far much down the line. It's it's more about you know clinical risk and um, you know regulatory risk. Um, yeah, in a sense, scientific technical risk that needs to be solved. But once you hit market, you know. Therapeutics are always worth literally billions per year. So, so there's no, going to be no problem in, in paying your investors back. I think the issue comes is if you are a founder in the sort of biotech space and you're looking to be B2B focused. So that means you're selling a product and you need to worry about the sales aspect. And there the question quickly gets difficult. It's like, well, you know, am I addressing the right market? Is this the right thing? Uh, how do I move from my uh, really, really tight niche where I get product market fit and my initial traction mm -hmm. to the end market, so my end game, where I'm actually making money that's going to realize my exit down the line. And I think that's a really challenging path. Um, myself, so, uh, you know, DeNovo Matrix, we haven't necessarily followed that path very, very accurately, right? We we focused very, very much on on, on uh, addressing our technical risk early on, and, and that's where most of the energy went. And then at some point, we started realizing, okay, well, we need to also address the, the market risk. Uh, you know, are we able to sell this product? Who's going to buy this product? Um, are they going to keep buying this product? How do we find you know repeat customers and, and growing uh, a growing market? Uh, so I think these are these are sort of the really really big challenges that need to go. I would say as soon as you've raised your seed, that should be sort of the key focus, or even ideally before that. Um, and I think that's that's a little bit maybe the, the disadvantage between sort of all other startups that are in the U.S. and the the way that they teach you you know how you should do a startup right first find your market then figure out how to you know how to produce the product. Uh, like like software as a service. Um, and biotech is more, you know, it turns out being more like, you know, somebody invented something cool that does something scientifically cool, and then you're trying to shoehorn it into a market. And that's a totally different question, right? That's that's the backwards. We shouldn't be doing that way. If you're, if you're going to be a, a startup, you should rather know the market and then figure out how you can address it. And with biotech, you can't really do that because scientific innovation, you know, you can't just be like, well, you know, I kind of need a machine that does X, Y, Z. Why don't I just build that? <laughs> I mean, it takes years, right? So, yeah. Whereas like software, you can, you know, code together some more features. You could pivot uh, really quickly. You know, biotech, you need that sort of like technical innovation. It's probably coming out of either academia or 
um, you know, some other you know, industry or something not industry, but other sort of or a company, right? A company might have a, a company right. com- might have their a technology which they have no interest in commercializing themselves, and say, well, you know, you know create your own your spin out and 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 do that. Um, and they have no real idea whether that's useful or not, whether people are willing to pay for it. I mean, it could even be a solve a, a solvable problem, a problem that people have, but people are not willing to pay for it, uh, or they're just not interested in solving that problem. I, mean, I think Harrison, one of your posts is exactly on that topic, right? That people say, "Yeah, I have that problem, yeah. but so what?" Yeah, yeah exactly. It's something we teach in in our discovery course is essentially just because somebody has a problem, you can't just go start pitching your solution Absolutely. right away. You have to take a step back and you have to understand like, is this a problem? One, that is urgent. Right? Are people actually going to like try and solve this right now? And is it a big enough problem that they're willing to you know, pay you know, potentially a premium for whatever that product or service they're offering is uh, in order to, to, to solve that problem? And, people often uh, don't think about the extension of the problem, right? So if you save them $2, but there's a load of investment in switching technologies. You may be better, but you're not better enough to make me put the effort in. Yeah. And yeah. you can even be somewhere in all of those spaces. I have a, a, a question for you, uh, that is, we often talk to a lot of people that are scientific founders that have ended up in sales. And I know your mindset isn't this because we've spoken before, but often their thought is, oh, okay, I've got a product. It's amazing. I'll sell itself. Sales is easy, right? Whereas you've gone from founder to CEO and you're working in the commercial aspects as CEO as well. Um, maybe you could talk a bit about that journey and whether there was a realization or you always knew that. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, I think, a really great point. And um, I think it's, yeah, what you're mentioning is is not uncommon. In fact, um, it might even be rewarded. So I've, I've also met more senior biotech CEOs who, um, you know, when I ask them something about sales or their commercial numbers, is it, well, I have no idea. I'm the CEO. So, you know, talk to the commercial guy. Um where I think, well, that's shocking. That that's shocking. How, you know, how can that be? And and um, you know, some CEOs do get away with it because they come from a scientific background and they focused solely on sort of product development. So they're sort of product focused people, um, and the product has been really successful through distributors. Um, then they don't have to think about the sales aspect as much. They just say, okay, well, we you know we appointed one, two, three distributors, and it's going pretty well. So we'll just leave it at that. Um, so that's okay, and that that might work for some so you know kudos to them and, and that that's awesome uh for us it wasn't the case so so we had a sort of explanatory heavy product or a service-based product which doesn't really allow itself to be distributed as well and so i had to figure it out on my own um so i i did a lot of online reading so this is around corona time when uh, you know there was essentially downtime in the biotech industry we weren't doing at least at the beginning at the beginning so it was like 2019 uh where we didn't have a lot of you know a lot of orders coming in, a lot of discussions. So I was like, okay, I, I should train myself. So I did a lot of online reading, found a lot of resources out there, mostly focused on SAS. Um, so cool to read, not necessarily very applicable to biotech since a lot of the lessons don't transfer. Uh, shoe of markets being being one, one big example, but there are others. Um, and then, yeah, I, I took some courses. So um, I took some sort of sales training courses to figure out, okay, how does, how does the process work? Um, and then I sort of learned about the different concepts, uh, which I found really, really fascinating. Um, I, I think it's a, a continual process, right? I'm by no means an expert. I, I still need to <laughs> read more and, and learn more. Um, and then, yeah, eventually I, I, I started working with you guys uh, on the topic, which I found even more sort of eye-opening since the, the, the advice and the background came from people who were really in the industry and, and had worked in the space. Uh, up until that point, I had only access to 
salespeople who maybe mainly came from sort of medical uh, device sales, which has its own, you know, there's its own thing. Uh, and it is closer to biotech, but it's not quite biotech. Um, so yeah, that's that's a little bit how how I learned learned about the process. And uh, yeah, internally, right now I teach my team um, internally about how sales works, how you know what process they should they should uh, employ, uh, the mindset, uh, the people that they talk to, how they should answer questions, what is discovery. It's like the thing that they that they hear me drilling into them all the time, like the most important thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so that's actually an interesting point, which is you went out on your own. You figured out how to sell, right? Self-taught. Uh, I'm going to figure out how to do this. Not a, well, one. Not everybody does that. So, one kudos to you there, right? And also seeking out help, seeking out help to make that happen. Uh, but then also, you're sort of transitioning a little bit from founder-led sales, where you're the sole salesperson, to hey, now we've got a team. So I've got to bring in a team. I've got to teach a team. We've got to coach a team. I now have to get them fired up about selling this product that you have years of you know experience and like you've been in the weeds, you know the industry so well, but now you've got these new people coming in. How do you actually get them up to speed, you know, appropriately? Um, I think that's that's tough, and and um, it was in one of your earlier, um, yeah, posts or, or earlier videos where where yeah, it, it also has to do with with the people, right? So some people are are you know having this like grit aspect. Uh, in them that they they are resilient and they are able to learn it themselves. So they they spend some time doing the sales and they they do it really bad. Uh, and at some point they figure out how how they should do it right. Um, I mean I can teach them a bunch of stuff, but it, inevitably they need to go out and talk to people and figure out you know how do they deal with questions, how do they deal with objections. Um, so I think it's it has a lot to do with the person and it also has to do with the background. So if people are excited about the science and they think wow I've 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 seen it you know um, a lot of people we invite them into the lab we have this. Uh, we have this day um, every year where we invite people from different positions in the company to see each other's jobs, and that's that's a perfect example where you know you bring in a salesperson, you force them to sit down at the at the laminar flow bench, and you say, "Look, you know you're gonna you're gonna do the pipetting now," and then they see the result and they're like, "Wow, this this thing actually works," and and they're you know they get excited about it, or they hear um, you know the, the people who did the product development talk about the results and explain why they're excited about it, the science behind it. And so people start to quote unquote believe, right? Um, they know the product works, they know the, the proof is in the pudding, and then they're motivated also to sell it themselves because they, they stand behind the product. So yeah, internal communication, I think, is just sort of one of the big things there. I think um, one of the things about that transition that I've heard, and uh, you're obviously doing it really well because you're keeping everyone engaged, but the problem is you know the technology and you may have been naturally good at sales, right? You, 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 you won't know whether it's something about to do the education or as a natural affinity. And often you'll see this with great reps as well. The people say, ah, oh, we had a great rep or a great founder. They sold loads. This is going to be easy, but there's no SOP, right? We're all used to standard operating procedures in the lab. There's no SOP of sales in your company to hand over to the next person. So they have to go and make all of the mistakes bit by bit. And I think that's something that's really difficult, this sort of SOP of training to hand over. Indeed, indeed. Um, so, you know, technically, if you're following the, the rule book um, of, of, you know, creating your own sales organization, you should always hire two reps, uh, right? So you have a sort of control group uh, internally. And, and, and indeed, you should provide them with, with an SOP of, you know, that's how you should do sales. But in the end, every, every rep will have their own flavor, right? They'll have their own focus of how they build their sales operation plan and say, look, I'm going to spend, you know, 20% of my time on prospecting, 30% on calls or whatever, 10% uh, on emailing. And then some of them slightly you know, do better in certain areas than others, and they're more successful at that. Others are, um, you know, simply 
better at the discussion part and they can convince people. Um, you know, we had we had one rep who who uh, you know he he spoke with people in in different languages, right? So he you know he I contacted he was Brazilian, right? So he contacted people uh, in, in Portugal and he could speak to them in their local language, and then you, you you're finding a different connection with people because you know you you come from the same place or you can associate with the same culture. Um, and he did really really well with that. Uh, and, and others are are not so good at the talking part, and and yeah, you can't really blame them. Um, but but I think it's especially tough uh, to evaluate reps as a, as a startup because the business itself is not entirely figured out. So I think comparing reps is only really fair if you're in a sort of scale up stage, and you know what the sort of angle is of your hockey stick, and then you can compare people and say, okay, how well are you actually doing? And then you're hiring, you know, four, five, six reps at a time. And then after, you know, six months, 12 months, washing out and seeing, okay, look, did they hit their 30, 60, 90 day goals or not? Um, then it's clear, right? But as a startup, I think that's a really that's really challenging, right? To say that someone's not necessarily cut out for the job when it could have been just the fault of the founder, you know, not teaching them well enough or or the market being not mature enough or whatever the, you know, case may be. Yeah. That be, so that being said, then it's... It sounds like it's almost difficult to set quotas, right? So early stage, how do you know, like, hey, what can we expect? Can we expect them to do a quarter million a quarter, a million a year? Like, what, it's super challenging. What is the sort of goal that you set? And so, and, and I guess then the question is, do you set a specific target or is it more focused on like, say, activity, right? So is it a revenue target? Maybe it's activity targets. How do you set these sort of goals at the early stages um, where you're still really testing the market to find out if there is product market. I think that's that's a great question. That's something which which we've been you know bothered by and and concerned with for the last three years. So how do you set a target? What's realistic? Um, and and mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's the sort of expectation from the investors. You know what target you need to hit in order to be showing that excellent growth. Um, uh, you know there's the the standard which people talk about, which is three x three x two x. So you want to grow three times in revenue for the first year, second year, also 3X and then 2X. And, you know, you're, you're following the sort of typical typical growth pattern. Um, and then there's the the realistic, you know, like as a person in the trenches doing the calls, um, you know, booking, uh, booking meetings, is that realistic? You know, can you hit that target? And uh, what we have found is that it's, it's you know, the first year, it's, it's basically a crapshoot. You might as well take a dart and throw it on the board. The number you pick, it's, it's not connected with reality because you simply don't know. You have no clue. You haven't talked to enough people. Um, and then following the first year, you can then start to sort of have an idea of in which direction it's going. Uh, what I found at the beginning is helpful for orienting is is looking at uh, activities. So for us, uh, the biggest cider is, is you know, book calls. Uh, so if we could book calls, then then we have more or less, you know, historically like a 30% chance of closing that deal. Um, that was really, really helpful. The amount of emails that you exchange or other activities didn't really correlate with anything positive, but but those activities did. And then um, following the first couple of years, then we could sort of get an idea, okay, how much could each person realistically close uh, after they've been sort of fully ramped? And uh, then we could, pr- you know, start projecting. So this year it's then, you know, getting a little bit more realistic. I think we can really project, okay, where can we close which deals? But at the beginning, it's it's very, very challenging. Yeah, I think you're also probably trying to figure out pricing even in the early days, right? So it's totally. like, there's so many... There's so many like nuances that exist in the early days that you're just trying to figure out. Um, so would you, I mean, what, what would be sort of your recommendation to any other early stage founders that, hey, we're bringing on two new salespeople, right? How would you set those goals? Would you set them on activity? Would you set it on on revenue? How would you kind of... Uh, I mean, I, I would maybe that? zoom out um, before like thinking of just the sales team. 
Um, so what, what I, you know, advice that I received and at the beginning, you know, I balked at it and thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do that, um, is that, you know, when you raise your first seed financing round, your investors are very, um, you know, product focused. They're like, okay, you need to create a product, which is going to massively scale and, and make us all a lot of money. And, uh, you don't want to say that dirty word service. That's, that's a really dirty word, right? Because that's, that's totally not scalable and you don't, you, you, you're not doing that, right? Um, but I was given the advice by, um, by a seasoned CEO um, who told me like, look, at the beginning, it doesn't really matter. What you need is cash in and, and cash gives you freedom, right? If you have, if you're a sustainable business, you're free. You, you can, you know, you can develop at your own pace. You can do things your own way. And so um, do services, do services at the beginning, because it's not necessarily scalable, but it will get you, it, it'll be much easier to close deals and it will get you to a stage where um, you're more regularly exchanging with people and you're learning about what it is that people really need uh, versus, a, you know, a product sale is sort of one and done versus a service, you sort of, you're developing relationships. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sorry that we didn't take that advice early enough. So we eventually, we did, we did go to that model of running more and more services and building relationships with with our customers over longer periods, which has been hugely helpful. Uh, that's what I would recommend to everyone. Um, and at the beginning, I think it's it's very important to have sort of founder-led sales. Um, since the founder knows the product, they know how to sell it, they know the science, they can be sort of the field application specialist and the salesperson at the same time. Although it's it's helpful to, to bring in an extra person every so often. But I think that's really, really important. And I think salespeople at the beginning of a startup, you know, don't have anything to, like they shouldn't be there. Uh, at the beginning, you know, if you bring in a sales rep, a sales rep is there to execute things which have been written down and like clarified, right? You can't bring in a sales rep and expect them like, hey, you figure out that sales thing, even if they're even if they're an, a seasoned person. So, uh, I mean, we've we've made that mistake. Uh, people talk about it. There's there's entire YouTube's about this where, you know, you you create your startup, you have a little bit of success. And then you say, well, now we have enough money. Now we're going to get some fancy schmancy sales dude from, you know, biotech X company, uh, you know, who has a storied career and made millions, millions in revenue. And they're going to come over to our business and they're going to figure out this whole sales thing for us. Um, we, we, we thought, no, we're smarter than everybody else. We're not going to do that. We did that. <laughs> we weren't, we weren't happy and we weren't happy. Um, and, and it's clear because, you know, salespeople, I think really, really successful salespeople. Um, require a certain infrastructure for their activities to to really shine, right? So for that guy or girl um, in that big company, they have a marketing department behind them. They have existing SOPs on how it should work. There's a brand, you know, all of these things work together. And sure, the guy's ensuring that the deals are closed. But as a startup, no way. You, it needs to be the founder. And I would say that there's a certain um, there's a certain tipping point, and that's at a, either at a certain revenue or at a certain um, standardization of what the buyer's journey looks like when it starts to make sense to bring people in to support you with the sales. And it doesn't necessarily have to be people who are closing deals themselves, but it could also be people who support you with, let's say, outreach activities or, or some marketing aspects. And then, you know, then it slowly starts spilling into like co-selling. But at the beginning, I, I would recommend people don't get any sales uh, until you know the founder has has figured it out because you know you need to figure it out and as a founder you can also say look we're not going to do product we're going to do service or we're not going to do this service we're going to do you know online based sales or you know that's something that you need to decide as the business is evolving and and you can't expect somebody else to do that for you if the founder is going to be the one that figures it out though do you advise they they seek training and mentorship in the way totally self process one hundred percent one hundred percent I mean as I said I think it, it's different if you're in the therapeutic space because it's not really relevant. 
but um, I think that so many so many scientific founders could really benefit from that because sales sales is is so different it, it pulls you away so much from you know when you when you speak in sort of science language it's about truth you know what is the fact what do we know and and sales is so different right it's about what what is actually arriving in the ears of the person you're talking to what do they care about it's not about you anymore um, and and uh, I think for a lot of people that's like it's a big mind switch that, that needs to be made uh, and it would be for everyone's benefit if they did it yeah I think as a as in a sort of maybe a, a rough analogy for people out there listening are in that phase you've got science like chemistry biology and physics and, and they're absolutes right they're theories and data but then you've got the other kind of side of science which is more psychology and, and more qualitative and I think sales falls into that bucket it's still a science it still needs a process it still needs an understanding but it's much more qualitative um, and you need to you need to uh, know how to navigate that. And if you can piece those two things together, they're the people that are successful with sales. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I, I would even I would even say in a certain stage, people would be successful in sales. At least we've we've also experienced that, right? Uh, reps in 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 our company who had experience in sales and like people skills, uh, even though they had very little or, or like I would say minimal sort of scientific knowledge. Um, they were still able to close more deals simply because you know they could they could connect with people. Um, so I'd say that's that's even more important. Well, this has been an awesome conversation, uh, but we're coming up on time. So want to ask you one more question, which is, you know, we're talked a lot about how uh, you know, CEOs or founders can you know, really go out and try and figure out sales, and they need to go and learn it. Where would you recommend that they start? <laughs> uh, with you guys. Certainly. <laughs> oh, well, okay. that, that's not what I meant. Uh, I've never what skill would you recommend they try and start with first? Right? Like, you know, there's a lot of different things that you can focus on within sales. Like, where, where would you recommend they focus? I think there's there's so many elements. Um, the the I, I, it's difficult to, to recommend just one um, because I think that you need to understand how the entire process is mapped out. Um, maybe, maybe it's also like my preference because it's the way that I like to think about things. But um, understanding the entire, like having a first a bird's eye view of what the entire sort of sales process is like is I think really, really helpful. And then you can dive in and become an expert at the various stages. So understanding like, okay, how do I define, like what is my buyer's journey? Um, how does that all work? You know, which points they have to interact with our content or to know my brand or what solution I have? Um, how does how does you know discovery work? What kind of questions do I ask? Uh, who are my you know ideal customer uh, profiles? Um, all of these aspects, I think, if you know a little bit about it, it's it's going to be very very helpful versus jumping in becoming an expert at you know discovery. Um, that that would be my feeling because that's that's or at least that's a pathway which I took, and for me that was um, really really helpful to map out the entire process and it felt like okay this is now the known universe and then I can go in and figure out my unknowns. Um, versus if, if I just did one thing, then I would feel like, oh, there's, there's a lot of these other aspects which I don't understand. Like, you know, what, this, what does this mean? Why does this not work for me? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably great advice for anyone, right? That's coming into sales, is currently in sales or, you know, you know founder trying to, trying to figure this stuff out is get a bird's eye view, figure out, you know, the whole landscape, figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at, and then go and systematically sort of improve those skills along the way. Yeah, and I think also depending on, on the salesperson about what position they have um, and what their sort of product type is. I mean, there's this like concept of, you know, are you, are you um, you know, 
hunting for for mice or for for elephants. Um, you'll have different kind of behavior as well. Uh, what you should focus on, uh, whether you're field application specialist, whether you are a sales rep, um, account manager. There are different skill sets that will be more important to you and others which will be simply less important to you. So so that, that then also makes a difference. But knowing the entire process helps you sort of piece things together. Um, and I also think that, you know, understanding perspectives, so different perspectives from people. So what that's, that's useful internally in an organization. So for example, what does your boss want from you? Or what do your team members maybe want from you or need to be successful? And then also the perspective of your your customers, you know, whether that's a scientist who's, a, you know, your champion internally or, or you know, somebody who's a gatekeeper, um, you know, understanding what their motivations are and putting, being able to put yourself into their perspective, into their shoes um, is also, I think, really, really helpful in sales so that you don't get like emotional. So that's, that's a big thing that I did at the beginning is like, you know, people don't want to buy from me. And I got really like pissed off, you know, <laughs> like, why is this not working? <laughs> and then, and then, you know, I start to abstract myself from, from the, the, the equation and start to understand, okay, well, you know, from this person's perspective, I'm this guy who is, you know, pushing something on them, which they don't want or don't need, um, even though their boss wants them to do it. And, you know, how do I, how do I put it in their perspective? Awesome. Well, uh, this has been a pleasure. So many great nuggets in here for everyone, whether you're in sales, whether you're a founder, you know, early stage, late, later stages. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being here and uh, have a great rest of your day. 